The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Sorry to interrupt your conversations. I'm glad that you're getting to know one another, hanging out, laughing, sharing stories. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here. We're really glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. I want to go ahead and welcome those of you that are here in the sanctuary. we got folks out in the overflow and across the way at the hub. want to welcome you also. As always, want to welcome the men and women who are tuning in from online today. Glad that we could gather together as the family of God and worship. You know, when you came in this morning, you would have gotten a bulletin like this. And it's a very, well, I'm not sure why they're pink. I'm assuming it's because it's Valentine's season. So we have a pink bulletin today, which is kind of cool. But if you look at the very top, there's, a, there's, a, there's an ad that says, say cheese. I just want to highlight this for a quick second. You know, we're coming off the tail end of the, the, the pandemic and we're still in it, but we can sense that we're kind of recovering and, and hopefully we're journeying slowly back to somewhat of a normal existence. So what we're doing here at Heritage is we're working really hard behind the scenes to kind of put ourselves in position. For, for when we are back to somewhat of a normal routine. And one of the things we want to be doing over the next three or four weeks is we want to highlight for you opportunities uh, to step into a place of serving, to step into the life of the church, to step into a place where you can begin to steward your time and your talent for the glory of God in one way or another. Today I want to talk to you about, about this idea of, of saying cheese, of being a part of our communications team. We're really blessed here at Heritage to have Angela on our staff. She is our communications director, and she is building a team of people to help us creatively think about the best ways we can communicate the truth of the gospel, both internally and to the outside world. And she's looking for people to join her team to help with social media. If you're a photographer or you're a creative on any level, if you've got background in video editing, anything like that, or if you don't have any of that, but you think it'd be really fun to join that team, you want to just talk about what it would be like to be a part of a, a communications team, Angela is going to be at our connections desk after the service. She would love, love, love the opportunity to talk with you. If you can't quite make it after service, if you've got Super Bowl plans you've got to go to, her email is actually listed right in this bulletin. I would encourage you to email her, to reach out to her. One of the really cool things about being on a serving team is that it gives you a place to connect with others. In a, in a world that's become increasingly disconnected over the last 11 months, being a part of a serving team gives you an opportunity to step into a community where you can know others, be known by others, and serve in the name of Jesus. I encourage you today as we continue our series in Genesis to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20 today. We started this series back in November. Uh, we are, this is our 10th installment in the series. We're going to be teaching through the first 11 chapters of the, of the book of Genesis. Uh, last week, if you were here, we, we saw uh, this picture of how our God, even in the midst of the sin of humanity, when Adam and Eve uh, uh, committed the first offense against God, in their rebellion, God pursued them. Even as the man and the woman hid from God, he pursued them. This week, the title of my sermon is God's Sentence and His Solution, Genesis 3, verses 14 through 20. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Father, I pray that today as we get into your word, God, as we look at, God, as we look at this text that is so familiar to so many of us, even outside of the church, this is a familiar text for those who aren't even believing. And God, I pray that our ears would be tuned to hear what it is you are seeking to say to us through this text today. God, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to respond in obedience. Have your way with us on this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today I'm going to be walking us through this text. I wanted to give you a glimpse of what we're going to be covering over the next few moments. Uh, The title of my sermon is The Sentence and the Seed. And we're going to talk about how the serpent is sentenced. We're going to then look at the, the, the promised seed that is within our text. And then we're going to see how God's judgment is spoken. If you want to take a look at that, that's going to orient us as we journey through the text. The big idea of my sermon today is simply that death doesn't have the final word. Death does not have the final word. When I was a kid, the most terrifying thing my mother could ever say to me, and maybe you have an experience similar to this when you grew up, the the most terrifying thing my mom could say was, go to your room and wait for your father to get home. When my mom would say that, it would send shivers down my spine, down the side of my siblings. It struck fear into us. I can remember one time when I was in fourth grade, there was a girl in my fourth grade class. Her name was Megan. Her family had money. My family didn't. Megan sat next to me in, in my fourth grade class, and she had this really fancy pencil box. Do you remember the little pencil boxes that kids could bring to school? I could never afford a pencil box. I tried to convert a shoe box to a pencil box one time. I got made fun of, so I didn't try that again. But Megan had a pencil box filled with expensive pencils and expensive erasers, and she would open her little pencil box at the beginning of every day, and she would put these little erasers all around the end of her desk, and in my jealousy, I hated her. And I, I struggled with Megan. And so then, fast forward a week or two or three, I'm, I lived across the street from the school that I went to, and one Saturday, I'm over there by myself playing, and lo and behold, I see this green jacket that someone left on the playground over the weekend, and it was Megan's. And I thought, I don't like this girl. How can I get back to her? So what I ended up doing was I, I, I peed on her coat and I buried it. <laughs> not, not my finest hour. I, I asked this preaching team if it's okay if I share this story. They're like, yes. I used the word urinated when I was talking to them on Thursday. They're like, just say pee. Okay, I peed on her coat. And I buried it, and I thought it was pretty funny. Fast forward a week or two or three, and I'm at the school playing with some friends after school one day, and I noticed that where I had buried her coat, some con- they were doing some construction work on our school, someone had unearthed her coat, and it was stained, and it reeked of urine, and it was laying on a concrete slab, and I kind of bragging to my friend, told him that I had peed on Megan's coat and buried it. And he went home, immediately told his parents, I lived in a small town, they called my parents, before I got home, my mom knew. I walked into my house and my mom has this look of horror on her face and she says to me those words that no young man ever wants to hear. She says, go to your room and wait for your father to come home. And I knew. As I walked in my room, I was like a death row inmate walking to the gas chamber. I was a dead man walking. I sat in my room waiting for my father to get home. My head was hanging low. I kept saying to myself, what was I thinking? 
shame, regret. What was I thinking? I knew I had to face a moment of reckoning for my rebellion. The truth is, all of us who choose rebellion have to face a moment of reckoning. Have you ever been in that place? Have you ever sat in that place in your life with your head hanging low, asking yourself, what was I thinking? Waiting in your room for a parent to enact just punishment, sitting in the back of a squad car, sitting alone in a jail cell, standing nervously before a judge in a courtroom, looking into the tear-soaked eyes of someone you love, knowing your rebellion caused those tears. What was I thinking? Have you ever felt the fear the rebel feels when they know the reckoning is right around the corner? In our text today, after God speaks his sentence over the serpent, he turns his attention to the man and to the woman, and the original rebels face the day of reckoning, the implication of which we still feel to this day. If you would with me, just kind of imagine what we've covered so far in our series on Genesis. Go back to the first chapter. We beheld the sovereign creation of all things, the beauty and the majesty of creator God speaking the world and all the cosmos into existence. Genesis chapter 2, we focused in on the beautiful creation of humanity, completely and entirely expressing the goodness and the perfection of God. And then two weeks ago, we began to journey into chapter 3 as we've studied and watched with horror as sin destroyed the harmony as God's image bearers rebelled and turned away from God and his rule. We left off last week with God's pained question to the woman, but really it was less of a question and it was more of a grieved expression from the heart of a father. What is this that you have done? As the man and the woman took the suicidal plunge into sinful rebellion, God, their creator, looked on with horror. And in the deadly aftermath of their rebellious choice, God just said, what have you done? And as we hear these words of God echo across all of history, you can't help but wonder, what will God do now? What will God do now? In the pained aftermath of the rebellion, how will the Father respond? As we look into the middle of chapter 3 today, we are looking at a very familiar text. But there's something new that I want you to notice. Maybe it's not new to you, but there's something I want you to notice from the very beginning of this passage. It's something my friend Mike Bullmore helped me to see. Mike is a pastor and a scholar, a theologian, a church planter, and he's a friend from Wisconsin. And as I listened to him teach on this text this week, he informed some of my thinking. As we read God's sentence over the serpent, as we hear God speak judgment over Adam and Eve, notice notice how God will set aside neither his holiness nor his mercy. This is how how Mike said it in a sermon on this very text. Mike said, God will set aside neither his holiness nor his mercy. God will not have his holiness disregarded. In the face of Adam and Eve's sin, God won't set aside his holiness. God doesn't say to Adam in the aftermath of him eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, no biggie, Adam, no big deal. We'll just sweep that under the carpet. We'll pretend it didn't happen. God will not have his holiness disregarded by man. But neither does he set aside his mercy. To show mercy is to have compassion or forgiveness towards someone whom you have every right to punish. God had every right to dump his wrath upon Adam and Eve, but he shows mercy in our text today. Mercy that is our only ground for hope as we gather in this place. God is both a holy God and a merciful God, and human sin does not diminish God's holiness. 
I heard someone say this week that human sin doesn't frustrate God's purpose. Human sin does not threaten God's sovereignty. When we look at the rebellion and the sin in Genesis chapter 3, we simply see God's sovereign purposes, his sovereign mercy, his grace, his plans. They're just simply being worked out in an entirely different context than in chapters 1 and 2. But the sin of man does not affect the sovereignty of God. But what does it mean that God is sovereign? What does it mean that God is working out his sovereign plan? Simply put, I, I think of sovereignty in this simple way. God is never asleep at the wheel, ever. Ever. Listen to what I learned this week as I, as I was reminding myself of the sovereignty of God. There are no limits to God's rule. God has all authority over all things at all times. He is sovereign over the whole world. He's sovereign over everything that happens in the world, which means that nothing in this world happens by chance. God is never helpless. He's never frustrated. He's never at a loss. Whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained to do a thing that he doesn't want to do. He's never backed into a corner. God does whatever God wants to do, which means that the rebellious actions of two rebels in the Garden of Eden did not threaten God's sovereignty. It did not undermine God's holiness, and it did not cause God to set aside his mercy. So let's look a little more carefully. Let's look a little bit more intentionally at these verses who we have grown so accustomed to hearing. Look with me again at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Last week as we saw God turn and begin to speak to Adam and Eve, we saw him ask four questions in his his pursuit of them. When God turns his attention to the serpent, there are no questions. Only God's sentence being handed down to the deceiver. Here's the first thing I want you to see. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write this down. The serpent is sentenced. The serpent is sentenced. What is the serpent's sentence? Well, he's going to be cursed. The crafty one is now the cursed one who will, from this point forward, be viewed with contempt. This isn't just simply some ancient allegory for how snakes wound up without legs. Remember, the serpent is the enemy of God. It's the enemy of man. Pastor Jeremy preached a couple weeks ago, this is the great dragon. This is Satan himself. The words that God is speaking to the serpent are that the the, the dust-eating death sentence of God is handed down to the deceiver. As one scholar puts it, the crawling here is simply, it's symbolic. It's, it's It's a new significance, not a new existence. So the cursed one is now sentenced to the humiliation of eating the dust of death for the duration of all his days. In the midst of the serpent's sentence, we see something else taking place. Look at verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That word, therefore, offspring, is the Hebrew word zarah, which simply means seed. It's the same word that that God uses in Genesis chapter 1 when he talks about plant life. God is speaking about the offspring of Eve. He's speaking about her seed. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. The promise of the seed. The second thing we see in our passage today is the promise of the seed in verse 15. This, in part, 
is a proclamation that there will be ongoing strife between the woman and the serpent. Remember, this isn't just a cute story about why humans are afraid of snakes. There's something much more going on here. God is saying that Satan himself will be at war with humanity. Satan and all of his minions or all of his offsprings will live with an ongoing hatred for humankind. Likewise, Eve and all of humanity that comes after her, her offspring, will similarly live with continued enmity towards Satan and his evil ways. But there's something more going on here than simply a proclamation of enmity. Look, look a little bit closer. Embedded in God's sentence of the serpent, there is a glimmer of hope in this verse, verse 15. There's a whisper of life in the midst of death. The story doesn't end with hopeless death. We read that Eve's going to have offspring. There's a promised seed. I want us to put a pin in verse 15. We'll come back to this in a moment. We'll circle back to that here in a little bit. But first, let's continue with the text. Because after the serpent is sentenced, after we see the promised seed, the third thing we see, and I encourage you to write this down, is we see God's judgment is spoken. The third thing we see in our text today is that God's judgment is spoken. We see this in verses 16 through 19. Three times in our text today, God speaks. He speaks to the serpent first, to the woman, and then to the man. The Lord God said to the woman, he said to Adam, he said, the last time we saw this repetition of speaking, God was speaking creation into existence in chapter 1. Oh, how different the tenor of the speaking is here than it was there. As God speaks his heartbreaking judgment over his beloved image-bearing creation, he speaks four words of judgment to them. Their willful rebellion against God and his holiness, it carries brutal, back-breaking, and deadly consequences. I mean, even before they sit under the judgment of God, Adam and Eve are, are suffering from the consequences of their choice. We learned this last week. Immediately following their sin, there was fear. Genesis 3, verse 10, we read the word fear for the first time in all of Scripture. Can you imagine what it was like for human beings for the very first time to experience fear? Here they are, standing at the base of the tree, chomping on some fruit, and all of a sudden, for some unknown reason, their heart begins to race. Their pupils begin to expand. They start gasping for air for some unknown reason. Their blood vessels begin to constrict. Their body is flooded with adrenaline. They don't know whether to fight or to run away. Their muscles grow tight. Their hair begins to stand on end. Goosebumps spread across their body. Their knees begin to shake. This is brand new. They've never felt this before. They think, what is this feeling that I'm feeling? It was fear. And now it's commonplace among the fallen. Another immediate consequence to Adam and Eve's decision that day in the garden was the reality of shame. Before the fear-inducing, eye-opening realities of sin invaded and corrupted humankind, they didn't know what nakedness was. They didn't even know they were naked. But then, as the juices of the forbidden fruit are rolling down their chin, a new, heavy, and overwhelming reality washes over them, and in tandem with fear is a brand new feeling. Why am I naked? They suddenly think. Why is he naked? Why is she naked? Why do I feel like I need to run and hide? Why am I ashamed? In an instant, shame became a part of the human experience. Another consequence would have been regret. Can you imagine standing at the base of the tree, juices running down their chin, a mouth still full of fruit, eyes suddenly open, fear and shame invading these two first humans, and in a second they recognized that they'd been duped. Their eyes were open, like the serpent said they would be, but this opening of the eyes was not 
going to make them like God, this opening of their eyes revealed just how ungodlike they actually were. And in one horrible second, the man and the woman realize that it was all a lie. They had believed a lie. They had been duped. Can you imagine the flood of bitter regret that took place in that moment? The backbreaking regret that would have washed over the man and the woman? Cloaked in fear and shame and regret, they would have said to themselves, what have we done? What have we done? And now as a child awaits in their room for their father to come home, head hung low with the weight of a guilty conscience, Adam and Eve await the judgment of God, fearful, ashamed, bitter regret. They await await the consequences of their choice, and God is about to speak his just, his righteous, his sovereign judgment over the man and the woman. And if it weren't for that word in verse 15 that we put a pin in, there would be no hope. But there is hope. But first, God speaks these four painful words of judgment. Here's the first one I want you to write down. The first word of judgment is pain. The first word of judgment is pain. Pain in childbirth. Look with me again at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain shall you bring forth children. Look at the word pain. It's mentioned twice in that verse. The first consequence that God decrees as a result of the fall is pain in a woman's labor. At this point, Eve hasn't even had children yet. She'll never even be able to know what it's like to have children apart from pain. Her first time giving birth would have been marked with pain. Her first experience in in parenthood would have been marked with pain. Pain in childbirth was not how it was meant to be. I can remember when my wife was giving birth to my daughter, Abigail, some 20 years ago. And I can remember, it was 39 hours. It was long and brutal. And at some point in the hospital, I'm pretty sure I began pontificating about the origin of pain in childbirth. I don't think Becky appreciated it very much at that moment for me to talk to her about the origin of pain in childbirth. But here we see it. All women have ever known is pain in childbirth. This is the regular experience of all women. It's the effect and the consequence of disregarding God's holiness. So the first word of judgment is pain and childbirth. Second word I want you to write down is conflict. The second word of judgment we see in our passage is conflict. You can say conflict in marriage or marital conflict. Look again at verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, God says, in pain you shall bring forth children. And then he goes on to say this to, to, to the woman. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I have read that text so many times throughout the course of my life, wondering exactly what's happening here. Pain is not just contained to childbirth. Pain isn't contained to simply the mother-child relationship. No, now here we see that pain, conflicts, tension, strife, it will now affect the marriage relationship as well. God is describing a relationship here that will be marked with dysfunction and disruption and distortion. These are words of judgment. Now, this is not a description of how the marriage relationship is supposed to be. This is the description of a marriage relationship that has been deeply affected by sin. There's two Hebrew words here that we have to pay attention to. They give us insight into what God is saying. The first word is teshuka, which simply means a desire towards something. When you see the word you desire, your desire in verse 16, that's the word teshuka. And it's interesting because this exact same word is used in the very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 4. Do you remember the story? Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel brought an offering to God. Abel's was, was, was more pleasing to God than Cain's. 
as Cain began to struggle with some jealous anger toward his brother, God begins to speak to Cain in Genesis 4, verse 7. God says, why are you so angry? Why is your face fallen, Cain? He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. The same word used for desire when God is speaking to Cain is the same word that's used when talking about Adam's desire or Eve's desire for her husband. In the end, when it comes to Cain, sin manifests in his life with a jealous rage that led to the slaughter of his brother. Because of sin, God is saying to the woman, because of sin, that same kind of contrary desire will now afflict the woman in the marriage relationship. In other words, God is saying to Eve, you are now going to have an aggressive desire to overrule your husband. There's going to be something in you that wants to be against your husband, and he shall rule over you. As one person points out, the word rule here is not a happy word. It means to rule over by strength. It's a picture of tyranny. This is not how marriage was intended to be. Marriage is intended to be a perfect a perfectly complementary relationship, but when sin is allowed to rage within the husband and wife relationship, it manifests in this tyrannical, iron-fisted ruling by the man and a manipulative, destructive, jealous desire by the woman. The perfect complementary relationship that God intended for marriage is going to be disrupted as a result of the curse. There will be strife. There will be tension. And I know full well that this type of strife and tension often leads to bitter tears. So the words of God's judgment are pain in childbirth, conflict in marriage. The third word of judgment is also pain. Pain in labor. The third word of judgment is pain. There will be pain in the man's labor. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. God says to Adam, in pain will you labor and eat. Let's not forget that work was not created. I mean, work was initially created as a part of God's good design for humankind. Work is not a part of the curse. It's not a part of the judgment. It's not that work is bad, it's the frustration of work that is bad. It's when things in work don't cooperate. I was mindful this week of, of when I was in college and in the summer times I would work in the woods in Montana hooking logs uh, for different logging operations. And I can remember those days, getting up at three in the morning, driving 40 minutes to, the, to where I meet with the crew. And they were all too lazy to drive, so me being the young guy would have to drive the crew cab another hour and a half up to the work site, into the mountains. We'd get up there, it'd just be light enough to see. The guy would get out and start the line machine and that gross smell of, of a diesel exhaust in the morning. And I'd stand out outside the truck cold and I'd look at the dew-soaked brush and I knew I'd have to walk in that wet brush to start the day and I hated it. Soaked into my legs, it made me cold. I'd go down in the brush with my cork boots and sticks would smack me in the face. I'd slip off logs, I'd skin my shin, the radio wouldn't work. I'd be telling the guy to take the log, the, the drag up, and, and, and the, the trees would get stuck behind a stump, and he'd be on there, the line machine, just reefing on the, on the, the I'm telling him to stop, you're going to snap a line or something, and I'm telling him to quit, and he's reefing the, the line machine.
machine's bouncing up and down on the road. I'm trying to tell him to stop. I remember one day I hear a snap and the, t- and the skyline snaps and I hear it whipping through the trees above me, taking trees down. It would have cut me in half and I'm screaming at the guy up on the landing. The work was frustrated. I had bloody shins. This is the picture of work, of toil. The labor that God has given us is difficult. It's going to be hard on our bodies. It's going to be hard on our minds. And as we look at the the cultural mandate that God gave in chapter 1 before there was the fall, there's this beautiful commissioning that God gives to humankind. He says to humankind in chapter 1, verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But now because of God's judgment, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth involves pain and opposition. To be fruitful involves pain in childbearing, pain in raising children. The marriage relationship is going to be a, a relationship that involves pain and strife. Every step of the way, there's an adversary who's working against you. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. But in pain, you shall toil over the earth now. It is a cursed soil. It will produce thorns and thistles. It will cause you to toil over every inch. Work is hard. It's hard on your mind. It's hard on your body. God is saying to Adam, you're going to eat, Adam, but you're going to do so in a very difficult way. And so the first three words of God's judgment are pain and conflict and pain. Finally, look with me at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Before the fall, in the creation account, man was formed from the dust of the earth. God breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life in chapter 2. And once given life, God brought the man into the garden to work it and to keep it. Man's work was not yet frustrated in Genesis 2. The work of the soil was a joyous endeavor, but now as a result of God's judgment, not only will the man toil over the soil, but also in death he will return to it. For God says to Adam, you are made from dust, and to dust you will return. And this is the fourth and final word of judgment. Death. The fourth word of judgment is death. In this fourth word, God is telling the man and the woman quite simply, you're going to die. You're going to die. But even in his judgment, there's a hidden bit of God's mercy. Do you remember back in chapter 2 as God was speaking to them? And and in verses 16 and 17, uh, God commanded the, the man and the woman, and he said, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He Actually, this is just a command he gave to the man. For in the day you eat of it, you shall die. How remarkable that they didn't die at the base of the tree. That's God's mercy in our text today. He shows his mercy in that they're still living. Adam and Eve will go on to log many more trips around the sun, but death has now entered their story on this day. Physical death awaits them both. Their bodies will both one day return to the dust. They haven't yet died in our text, but they're already beginning the process of dying. As a result of their disobedience and of God's judgment, the unavoidable certainty of death now haunts all of humanity. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so God has spoken his judgment. It's a hard judgment. The first word of judgment is pain in childbirth. 
The second word of judgment is conflict in the marriage relationship. The third word of judgment is pain in labor. The fourth word is death. And just like that, God's words to Adam and Eve are over. And I wonder, what was it like for Adam and Eve in this moment? The deafening silence, God has stopped speaking. They're sitting there, fear, shame, regret, pain, conflict, labor, death. What was it like for them in that silent place? I think back to that day in my bedroom, running through my head again and again, Paul, what were you thinking? I was embarrassed, I was ashamed, I was filled with regret. And then I heard the horrible sound of my father's truck turning down the driveway. I heard the door of his truck slam. I heard him walk up the steps, heard the front door close, heard my mom and him talking. I heard him debri- my, mom, my mother debriefing my father on my shenanigans. And then I heard the terrifying footsteps of my father coming toward my bedroom and I knew that it was over. I knew my life was gonna end, I was a dead man. But rather than storm into my room with fury that day, my father was calm. He came in and he had, he had concern on his face. He sat down on my bed, he pulled me up on his lap and he asked me what I'd done and in embarrassment I told him what I'd done. And then he said those devastating words that no one ever wants to hear their father say. You, you know those words, father. My dad says, son, I'm disappointed in you. And then in a very calm and measured and even loving tone, my father explained exactly how he was gonna punish me. And even though I had put on every pair of underwear I owned, it was very painful. But you know what? Even as a fourth grader, I knew that my father's actions were in love. I was nine. My life didn't end that moment. And even as my father was handing down this much-deserved consequence, there was hope. My dad still loved me. And I knew that he loved me. He disciplined me in a way that revealed his love for me. There were tough consequences, but his love was still there for me. See, when I imagine Adam and Eve sitting in the crushing silence after God stopped speaking his judgment, even as all the weight of God's judgment and all the weight of their regret settled heavily onto their shoulders, even as they contemplated all that was lost, fellowship with God, purity of heart and mind, joyous completeness in the presence of the Lord, even as they sat there under their tremendous regret, Purely in my imagination, I imagine after several moments of pain, silence, at some point, they looked at each other. And with tear-filled eyes, I can imagine Adam saying with surprise, we're still alive. They knew that God was disappointed, but even in his frustration, even in his judgment, even in his anger, the Lord didn't end them on the spot. They knew that they were the benefactors of mercy. And then Adam says to Eve, did did you hear what he said when he was speaking to the serpent? Did God say something about us having children? Are we going to have children, Eve? And what was that that he said about our child crushing the head of the serpent? Remember when we stuck a pin in verse 15? Let's circle back to that. Adam and Eve recognized there's something more that God has said. It wasn't that the, the four words of judgment ended the conversation. There was another word that God had spoke. He spoke it ironically when he was speaking to the serpent. In the midst of all this bad news of Genesis chapter 3 contained in verse 15, there is a glimmer of hope. It's the first proclamation of the good news. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right here in the first pages of Scripture, in the devastating aftermath of sin and rebellion and death, right here in Genesis 3.15, the gospel itself makes its debut. People who are smarter than me call this the protev, they call this the, the protev angelium. I simply call it the first utterance of the gospel. These are words of incredible hope. First off, God just says to them, yeah, there's a promise of offspring. Yes, Eve, there is going to be death, but not before children. Yes, Adam and Eve, you're going to die, but you're going to be survived by your kids. And yes, there's going to be pain in childbearing, but there will be childbearing. And yes, your kids will one day die, but they're going to have kids. And and that's going to go on from generation to generation to generation. We're going to see in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 genealogies in in the book of of Genesis. And these genealogies testify to the mercy of God, to the grace of God, to his faithfulness generation after generation. But there's something else contained in these words other than the promise of childbearing. He shall bruise your head, he says to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. He is third person singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As we've already established, the serpent here is the great enemy of mankind and the great enemy of God, Satan himself. And and the singular he in verse 15 is this offspring of seed, this offspring of Eve. And it's not just any child. This is the child. This is the promised one. This is Jesus Christ himself in Genesis chapter 3. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, the apostle Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus, in God's due time, came into the world to do battle with and to defeat Satan. It was a battle in which Jesus' heel was bruised. He suffered a survivable wound. He suffered brutal affliction, affliction at the cross, but Jesus rose victorious. His wound was not fatal, but at the same time, Satan received the fatal blow. Jesus Christ himself crushed the head of the serpent. The cross and the empty tomb testify to the victory of Christ over Satan. The victory of Christ over sin and death. Verse 15 anticipates this this great and decisive victory of Jesus we see on Calvary. We're fortunate enough to live, you and me, at a place in, in redemptive history, at a place in salvation history where we are on this side of the cross. And we can look through the cross into Genesis chapter 3. And we can look back through history and we can know because of where God has blessed us to live in, in redemptive history, we can see the faithfulness of God to do the very thing he said he would do. We can see the sovereignty of God whose plans cannot be thwarted. We can see the mercy of God making a way for salvation, a way for life. Yes, Adam and Eve. The wages of sin is death. Yes, because of your rebellion, you will face death. But then Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death has been defeated in Jesus. And in its place, he offers us life. Death does not have the final word. In In the soil of toil, God planted a seed. In the dust of death, God has promised a descendant. Death does not have the final word. And as we look back at our text today, as we look back on this heartbreaking day in Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve are sitting under the weight of judgment, 
they sit amidst fear and shame and regret, God gives them the promise of life. Through a seed who we now know as Jesus Christ. Listen, in the soil of toil, God has planted a seed. In the dust of death, God has promised a descendant. Death does not have the final word. And when all is said and done, you get the sense that Adam got it. In verse 19, God hands down a death sentence. From dust you have come to dust you shall return. That's the final words of God to Adam. But then in the very next verse, Adam calls his wife Eve, which means life giver. He doesn't call her Teshuka or pain. He doesn't name her death. It seems as if Adam was clinging to the promises of God found in verse 15. Look at me at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What hope? In his mercy, God has the final word, and the final word is life. In the soil of toil, God planted a seed. In the dust of death, God has promised a descendant. And even as we look at this heartbreaking text, we can know and have hope in the fact that death does not have the final word. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the men and women who you've gathered here today. God, I'm so thankful that we can gather, and this isn't hyperbole, this isn't just a Christian uh, uh, saying, this isn't like hallmark bumper sticker theology, this is an absolute true statement that death does not have the final word. God, thank you that we can glimpse into Genesis chapter 3, we can glimpse into the first pages of Scripture, and we can see right there at the very beginning that, God, you had a plan that through the promised seed, through Jesus Christ himself, you would crush the head of Satan. You would defeat and overcome sin and death. So God, my prayer today as we gather in this place, as we prepare our hearts to break bread, to observe the Lord's Supper, as we consider and think of the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Christ, God, I pray that as we partake of the elements today, we would partake it as an act of worship. God, as we fix our eyes on you, God, we love you so very much. We ask you to meet us in this place in Jesus' name.